Well, we left off in uh, verse 46 of chapter 26 in Matthew with Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And he prayed the hardest when it was hardest to pray. And it was from this moment on when things began to fall apart, humanly speaking. Uh, As Judas betrays Jesus, Peter denies Jesus, and the religious leaders put Jesus on trial to lead him to his death. And the rest of this chapter shows Jesus being abandoned by everyone as he is now left to himself to go to the cross. And the first thing we see here on this, this night here is betrayal. Jesus has just risen uh, from his knees in prayer, and he said to his disciples, okay, let's go. It's time to go. My betrayer is, is at hand. And then we drop in here in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, if you remember, Judas left the upper room in the middle of the Passover meal before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus told him, do what you must do quickly. Uh, And he was dismissed. And behold, here he is now with a great multitude. We don't know the exact number of people, but it was likely in the hundreds. This is not just, here's 10 or a dozen people. A detachment of troops was between 200 and 600 soldiers. And from other gospels, we know there, there was a detachment of troops there. But not only were there the soldiers, there are the religious leaders, the chief priests, including the high priest, as we'll find out later, it was the high priest's servant who had his ear cut off. So the high priest is there, the elders being the Sanhedrin, and also the temple police, who were the Jewish men who were given authority by the Roman government to watch over the temple area. So altogether, there were, there were easily hundreds of men coming, thus a multitude, and some with swords and clubs. The temple police, they would have had the clubs since they had limited authority. They couldn't have weapons to kill because of the Roman authorities, but the Roman soldiers would have carried swords. So there were hundreds of men, and they're armed to the teeth. But it's not like Jesus was going to run, like he had any intention of resisting arrest. In fact, Jesus had gotten up from prayer, and he went to them. But all of this was because Judas has now come to betray him. Verse 48, now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one seize him. We know Judas has already made arrangements with the religious leaders earlier in the week to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He has just been looking for the right moment, the right opportunity. And that's why Jesus kept the location of the upper room a secret uh, to the last possible moment because he desired, he deeply desired to have the Passover with his disciples before going to the cross. He didn't want that to be interrupted uh, prematurely. So he kept that kind of under, under wraps until the last possible moment. But during the meal, Judas realizes they're about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray right after the meal. So he leaves the meal early to go and get everyone else to go arrest Jesus. Now, what's so disgusting about this, besides the fact that he's going to do what he's going to do, he's going to do it with a kiss. Why? Why a kiss? Well, first of all, it would have been dark, 
And even though they had seen Jesus teaching publicly out in the open, they need to make sure they're arresting Jesus and not one of his disciples. Understand, Jesus did not stand out above everyone else. He looked like everyone else. Uh, And I know sometimes you look at the old paintings of back in the medieval dark ages or from centuries ago, and you often see Jesus has this kind of halo in the paintings, like, well, that's Jesus. He didn't look like that. He didn't walk around with a halo. He looked like an ordinary man. So it's nighttime, it's dark, and Judas wants them to make sure they get the right person. We also know that in that culture and in the Middle East today, they would greet one another with a kiss. It was a sign of respect and also close friendship. Now, also, I want to point this out. Judas's name means praise. It's the Greek rendering of Judah. Judas, praise. His parents named him Judas. May he grow up to praise the Lord. That makes this even more tragic. Jesus gave him another name, the son of perdition or the son of waste. And his life was surely that a wasted life. So here you have Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. He's like, hey, I'm still your friend, Jesus. Maybe he's trying to even pacify Jesus. Like, you know I still love you, right? I'm just, I have to do this. I'm just, but I still love you. And he plays the hypocrite all the way to the end. And he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Verse 49, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Of course, Jesus knows why he's there. The question is is aimed at Judas's heart to ask him, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Friend, why have you come? And when Jesus calls him friend, he is loving Judas to the end. I mean, if we knew, if you knew one of your best friends was going to betray you and have you killed, you knew that was going to happen, would you still call them friend? Uh, Now, we might have said something like, you know what? I've been holding this in for three years now. Uh, I'm going to let you now know what I think about you. You, You're a greedy, thieving, backstabbing loser. No, maybe that was just me that would think something like that, but (laughs) that's what we would tend to think. But Jesus calls him friend. He calls him friend. As Judas is betraying him, Jesus looks into his eyes and calls him friend. That is amazing. And Jesus loves you, and he loves me, and he's loved us even before we surrendered our lives to Christ. While we were yet sinners, he loved us and went to the cross. That is also amazing. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. And he calls Judas friend. Verse, he continues, verse 50. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So Jesus has now been identified. They lay hands on him and they grab him. Verse 51. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, and John's account tells us who that was, it's Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. What is Peter thinking? Maybe he's trying to prove himself. I mean, he said, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. In fact, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to be the one who sticks up for you, Jesus. So he takes out his sword, but Peter is a fisherman, not a swordsman. And he, I think he's trying to cut off his head. Most commentators believe that. He's, he's trying to cut off uh, this guy's head. He misses and, cut off, and cuts off his ear. 
I mean, I'm no swordsman, but I think it would be pretty hard if you were trying to cut off someone's ear, just to cut off the ear. And other gospels tell us that Jesus, or that Jesus, uh, or that Peter cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. But in front of this whole crowd, Jesus kneels down, picks up the ear, puts it back on, and heals the man's ear in front of everyone. So this multitude of people, they come to maliciously arrest Jesus, and yet he compassionately heals his ear. What an amazing act of mercy and compassion in a moment when you would think if anyone, if there's ever a time to be self-absorbed and self-protective, but no, he reaches out and heals him. Verse 52, but Jesus said to him, speaking of Peter, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's where we get that famous, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Verse 53, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. He's saying, I don't need help. Peter, first of all, I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal. Thousands upon thousands of angels. That is impressive, especially considering that just one angel killed up to 185,000 soldiers in one night. You see that in 2 Kings 19. One angel did that. So thousands upon thousands of angels? No, Jesus didn't need Peter's help. So he's saying, Peter, back off, put your sword away. Besides, Jesus is God. I mean, he is God. He could do it himself if he wanted to. In fact, another miracle that John chapter 18 describes tells us that when they first came to arrest Jesus, when Jesus got up from his knees from praying, and he came out to greet them, he asked, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And when he said, I am he, they drew back and they all fell to the ground. He just laid them all out in that moment. Imagine all of these soldiers, everybody just laid out. And then they got back up and they proceeded to do what they were going to do. But Jesus was showing his power to them. So he, and he also heals this guy's ear. So he's done two miracles here in this scene already in front of these men who are about to arrest him, but they still don't get it. And of course, Jesus tells Peter, you've already seen my power demonstrated. I could stop this whole thing right now at any time if I wanted to, but there's a reason he didn't. Verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? He's saying, I need to be arrested so I can be crucified. This is why I came, and this is how it's supposed to happen. So Jesus addresses Peter, and now he addresses those who are going to arrest him in verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. It's like, what's going on? What's with the show of force? Remember at the beginning of the week, Jesus came into Jerusalem. He was heralded as the Messiah. The next day, he went into the temple. He overturned all the tables, and no one stopped him then. And, and he was preaching in the temple all day long, uh, the next day and the next day, all week long, and not one person resisted him. Why? Because the religious leaders knew that the people held Jesus in high honor. Many of them proclaimed him to be the Messiah, but now, under the cloak of darkness, 
They can do their dirty work. They do their deed. Verse 56, Jesus continues, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. It needed to happen to fulfill scripture. And then we read the, these tragic words at the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. It was bad enough that Judas betrays him. Now the disciples abandon him. Zechariah 13 verse 7 foretold that this would happen. And Jesus said back in verse 31, you're all going to abandon me. And they did. And it all happens in the midst of betrayal, which now leads into the trial. Our second point, the trial. But Jesus didn't just have one trial. He had six separate trials, three of them before the Jewish authorities, three before the Roman authorities. Trial number one was before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Trial number two is before Caiaphas. That's what we're going to read here. Trial number three is the next morning before the whole Sanhedrin with the death sentence. But since the Roman government took the right of capital punishment from the Jews and only the Romans could now dispatch such a ruling, they would have to then bring this before the, from the religious court now to the civil court. So that's the next three trials. Pontius Pilate, that's trial number four. Pilate tries to weasel out of it and get Herod to take over and take responsibility and Herod to, to use his jurisdiction. So he sends them to Herod. That's trial number five. And Herod sends them back to, to Pilate for trial number six. And that's where Pilate gives in to the Sanhedrin and the death penalty is invoked. So there's six trials that are going to happen. And John's account tells us that before this one that we're about to read, that Jesus went to Caiaphas' house, he first stood before Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law. He's like the godfather of high priest in the sense that he was the high priest, he had been the high priest, and now his son-in-law is the high priest, but he's still pulling the strings behind the scene. He still has control of even all the future high priests. In fact, when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, it was Annas who was running that whole operation. Annas, it was called Annas's Bazaar. It was even referred to by his name. He's running all the temple concessions. So Annas wants to have one last look at Jesus before he hands him to Caiaphas to condemn him. And then he gives, this also gives Caiaphas time to get things in order. And that's where we continue now, verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So earlier, Peter, Peter had fled. Unfortunately, he now follows Jesus at a distance. He wants to see what's going on, and he's still determined to prove that Jesus' prediction was wrong, that he's not going to deny and forsake him uh, unto death here. And he finds himself in a place he should not be. And so Jesus, he's now been arrested, and he's brought before a secret tribunal at the high priest's house. Verse 59, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Everything about this trial here is illegal. According to Jewish law, the, the Mishnah, first of all, only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. 
This is being held in Caiaphas's home. Uh, criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season or any holiday season or festival. And here we are in the middle of Passover. Uh, this is happening. Uh, also, and only an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait at least one night to allow for any feelings of, of mercy or anything like that to arise. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. Uh, false witness was punishable, punishable by death. Nothing was done to any of the false witnesses uh, in Jesus' trial here. And also, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence for the innocence of the accused before any evidence of, the guilt, of guilt was offered. That did not happen here. This is a fixed trial. They know Jesus has done nothing wrong, so the only way they can have him put to death is to get false testimony against him. Hey, we need some false witnesses. But I love verse 60. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. What an incredible testimony to the life and to the integrity of Jesus. He lived a very public life, and he performed a very public ministry, yet no one had anything that would stick. But it continues, verse 60, At last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, you remember the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. And we hear that and we think, well, yeah, that means to don't tell lies. That, that's what bearing false witness means, to not lie. Now, when they said he, that Jesus said he would destroy the temple and raise it in three days, did Jesus say that? Yes, he did. He did say that. That was the right information, but it was the wrong implication. Bearing false witness isn't just telling a lie. It's giving information to suit your purposes. It's technically correct, but you're manipulating the situation. And that's what bearing false witness means. It's to distort the, the facts. That's not really a false testimony because Jesus did say that. The problem is they're taking it out of context. They're saying that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple. Like an accusation of, of terrorism, if you will. Yes, Jesus did say those words, but he was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. He was saying, this body will be crucified, it's going to be destroyed, and in three days it will be built up. He's saying, I will rise from the dead. That's what Jesus is talking about. Nonetheless, the high priest, he wants to pressure Jesus to agree with these charges. Essentially, he's saying, you're a terrorist, Jesus, you're trying to destroy the temple. You said it yourself. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? Was it these men, what is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, the prophet says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
This is fulfilled right here in this passage. Jesus kept silent. Then, continuing verse 63, the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas, Caiaphas, he gets frustrated by Jesus' silence, and he cuts right to the chase. Here's what he really wants to know. Are you the Messiah or not? He's putting Jesus under oath. And because, because if under oath Jesus is the Messiah or if he believes he's the God, he, he will claim it. And if he claims to be God, Caiaphas can now charge him with blasphemy. And the truth is, if someone in that culture claimed to be God, that would be a blasphemous statement. Unless, of course, they actually are God, as Jesus is. And so now, under oath, Jesus answers truthfully, since Jesus can only speak truth, uh, he can only tell the truth. He had kept silent and answered nothing until it was absolutely necessary in obedience, now being under oath, for him to speak. In verse 64, Jesus said to him, it is as you said. You think about all the things Jesus could have said. I mean, he could have mounted a, a great defense here calling forth all these witnesses to his deity, his power, his, his character, all the people he taught, the people he healed, the blind who could now see, the dead who had risen, he could have mounted quite a defense. But instead of defending himself, he simply testified of the truth very briefly, very directly. But Jesus knows Caiaphas, his devious intentions here, he knows he's going to use this to charge him. And he knows he will be sent to the cross. And he adds this little thing here at the end. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yes, Caiaphas, I am the Messiah. So I will be sitting at the right hand of my Father. And the next time you see me, I'm going to be coming down from heaven in a glorified body and I will be coming in judgment. But this, this only hardens Caiaphas, and he just becomes more incensed in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. Now, the high priest is actually forbidden to tear his garment or his robe, with one exception, blasphemy. If he believes that this was the high crime of blasphemy, then that was the only exception where he could tear his robe. And he tore it, and he's pronouncing, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. He's like, we don't need witnesses. You, you heard him. He said it. Verse 66, what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. So here, under the cloak of night in this secret place, without any defense, Jesus is sentenced to death. That's bad enough. That's horrible enough. But these calloused-hearted men, uh, they begin to beat him. Verse 67, then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? And Luke's account says that they put a sack over his head so he, he couldn't see as they began to hit him, which clears, clears that up why he was why would they would say, who hit you? He couldn't see where the, where the blows were coming from. It was radical enough that Jesus responded to Judas by calling him friend. How does he respond to these people? 
Peter himself actually gives us some insight in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. So many years later, after the fact, Peter is writing this letter, and he says that when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What an amazing response. So Jesus is abandoned at his betrayal, abandoned at his trial, and now we're going to see him abandoned at Peter's denial in verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. So here's Peter's first opportunity to stand with Jesus. After all, he had just fled the garden after saying, I'll never leave you. So now he can back that statement up. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. So Peter doesn't just tell the girl, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. He's telling everyone there. He says it to everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. Strike one. Verse 71, and when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him. And said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. This time, Peter doesn't just lie, he does it with an oath. He's gone from, I'll never leave you, Jesus, to denying him twice in front of two campfire girls. That's who he's denying this to. Strike two. Verse 73 says, and a little later, Now, Luke's account tells us it was about an hour later. That means Peter's had time to think about this. He's denied Jesus twice. Jesus prophesied, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Okay, I've just done it twice. He's got an hour to think about it, what he's already done. Verse 73, and a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Peter is from Galilee in the north. Most, all the disciples were from Galilee except Judas, uh, but they're, from, they're Galilean. And all, so all the, all the other disciples from Galilee had a different accent than those in Jerusalem and in the south. So his accent stood out, you know, just like it does here. You know, you hear somebody from New York or Boston or Minnesota or something, your speech betrays you. You know, it gives you away. It's like, it's obvious to us here in Texas where we talk normally, right? <laughs> so that's the same thing here. You know, in Jerusalem, they could tell, oh, you're from Galilee. Your speech betrays you. But if you think his speech was bad, it's like Peter saying, now, I, I'll give you some speech. Verse 74, he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. That word curse, in the original language, it means to call death upon oneself by the hand of God. Peter is literally saying, may I be damned and killed if I am not telling you the truth. Heavy. Each of Peter's denials get worse and just more radical. And that's how sin works when we don't deal with it, right? When we don't deal with sin, it's not addressed. It gets a little worse a little more radical when we don't deal with it. And here is strike three. Immediately a rooster crowed. 
the end of verse 74. Verse 75, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. John's account tells us that right as Peter denied Jesus this third time, at that moment, Jesus being led out of Caiaphas' house to the praetorium, and so Jesus was coming right out just as Peter denied him the third time, and it tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. They made eye contact. Now, what kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter? Do you think he was hurt? He was angry? Maybe that look of just bitter disappointment? No, I think it was a look of love and compassion. In, in a way, the way you answer that question tells you what you think about the heart and character of God, how we live out our life before God. When we mess up, do we think, oh, he's disappointed, he's mad at me, he's disappointed, or is it compassion? Peter, it brought him to tears. He wept, he went out and wept bitterly, it says. This is the beginning of his repentance, Several things had brought him to this place. Listen, Judas was sorry about his sin, but it was not a sorrow that led to repentance. Understand, for a believer, if you've trusted Christ for salvation, you know, that term backsliding, we, we occasionally use that word. Backsliding is a decline from a spiritual experience that we have once known. Like, we've been to this place. I've, I've been in this place with the Lord. I'm not where I used to be. There's been some backsliding at that point in your life. Now, for anyone who's not a believer, there is no backsliding. You're, you're not a believer. But for the believer, there can be declines in our, in our lives. Peter slipped, but he will not fall because his bitter weeping will lead to repentance and restoration. But what led up to Peter's denial of Jesus? Because Peter's failure here is not the result of just one spontaneous act. Like, oops, where did this come from? Out of nowhere. No, there were many actions that have led up to this. And I think that's important for us to see. Because we have this constant battle going all the time in our walks with the Lord. We're either moving forward or we're moving backward. And Peter, he's taken a lot of steps back to get him to this place. What were the steps that led up to his denial of Jesus? I'm going to give you three. Overconfidence or pride. He was overconfident. He said, I'll never deny you. These other guys might, but not me, Lord. I'm the rock. Remember, Jesus affirmed Peter's confession that he was the Christ. Uh, there was that time where Jesus is asking, who, who do others say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? And Peter, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you got that right, Peter. Blessed are you. And from now on, Simon, you are now Peter. You're the rock. But the rock was a little rock, a pebble. And from then on, Peter thought, I'm the rock. I got the answer right on the test. And I'm, 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 I'm going to prove I'm the rock. He was overconfident. And he said he would never deny Jesus. That's step number one, overconfidence. Two, he slacked off in his devotional life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sleeping when he should have been praying. And here we just read, he's following Jesus at a distance. He's quite a distance from Jesus. 
So he slacked off in his devotional life. And third, he tried to cover up his lack of devotional life with zealous service that Jesus didn't need. He's swinging his sword around, acting like he's doing something for Jesus. Jesus didn't ask for that. He didn't need that. It was a work of the flesh by Peter. And listen, zealous service without a devotional life will be just that, a work of the flesh. We need to be, that devotional life needs to be there to match our service, to know that we are serving in the spirit and not doing things on our own for our own reasons. So those are three steps backwards. In fact, if you compare this to Psalm 1, verse 1, it's a perfect example. In Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Peter did all of those things. All of those steps that night. He walked in the counsel of the ungodly when he walked in the courtyard at Caiaphas' house. He stood in the path of sinners when he lingered by the campfires. And he sat in the seat of the scornful when he began to curse and swear. I don't know him. And get this, this use of the three times, there, there's, that use happens three times. Peter boasted he, that he would not deny the Lord three times. They were sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane three times, and Peter denies the Lord three times. But the best part is recorded in John's gospel. After the resurrection, Peter affirms his love for Jesus three times. Three times, all in response to Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he was asked three times because he denied him three times. This was Peter's darkest moment. But since Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him, it didn't surprise Jesus that Peter was going to deny him. I mean, he already called it. It surprised Peter, but not Jesus. And listen, when you fail, don't think that the Lord is like, oh, I can't believe it. I did not see that coming. Uh, no, he looks at you and says, I know. I, I saw where you were headed. I saw that coming, and I'm ready to receive you. I'm ready to forgive you. I'm ready to restore you. Listen, to be disappointed in yourself, and, and we all do. We, get, we feel disappointed in ourselves at times. But what that means is when we're disappointed in ourselves, that means we were trusting in ourselves to do it, and we weren't trusting in the Lord. Jesus is not disappointed because he never trusted in you to begin with. He knows us. So this was Peter's darkest moment, but it's going to be eclipsed by his brightest day. He will meet Jesus after the resurrection at the shores of Galilee, just as, uh, Peter, or just as Jesus predicted, and Peter will be restored, and he's going to be recommissioned. Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, I can't believe you. You really dropped the ball back there. Uh, I can't trust you. I can, I can never use you again. No, he says, okay, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Attend to them. Peter was restored and recommissioned. That's what God can do. And that's what God wants to do. When we fall, when we mess up, when we stumble. So maybe you can relate to Peter in some respect. You're a Christian, but you've been spending more time in the world than with the Lord. 
And those things that God has gifted you to do, you're not doing those things. You're not serving using those things. Maybe your, your devotional time is, is not what it used to be. Or you're not serving as much as you used to be doing. You've been serving or you're doing it without a close walk with the Lord. So you're, you're just kind of like swinging your sword, doing all kinds of things, thinking you're doing something, but you're not. You're not doing what God's asked you to do, what he needs you to do. Whatever it is, you know that you need to get back close to the Lord, walking closely with him. You're saying, I want to get back. I want to be close to the Lord. The Lord wants that for you as well. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together.